Um, I just found out Jace's middle name, which is awesome. Um, well, good morning. Um, welcome to me again. Uh, I'm back. And um, I, I'm really glad to be with you all this morning. Uh, we're going to continue our sermon series on foundations of prayer. And um, like has already been said, it's a pretty big deal in our church. And so we're really intentional about prayer and um, diving deep into prayer and all of that. So we're going to, I'm just going to dive right in this morning. Um, so I have a question for you guys. Um, are you a person that struggles with anxiety or are you a person that struggles with stress or depression or lack of sleep or heart problems or do you struggle to hear? Now I'll probably named pretty much everyone and um, I'm hoping that I named everyone because I think everyone struggles with at least anxiety or something around that. Um, but in 1905, there was this Nobel Prize-winning scientist um, named Robert Koch, and he said this, the day will come when man will have to fight noise as much as he does cholera and the plague. And he said that in 1905. Um, the World Health Organization did a 10-year study in Western Europe on noise pollution and found that 100 million healthy years are lost every year due to, health, uh, due to noise pollution. And of course, they tacked on an economic value to that and they figured out that that is literally costing Europe 40 billion euros a year. It's now been scientifically proven that too much noise can lead to short-term effects such as anxiety, hypertension, sleep quality, distraction, stress levels, and even temporary changes in hearing, as well as long-term effects such as heart disease and permanent loss of hearing. It's become so bad that the noise pollution has directly contributed to 26 million people in the U.S. experiencing some level of loss of hearing. And it's now estimated that around a billion people worldwide are at risk of um, uh, experiencing hearing loss. What's particularly worrying is that our body hears noises even when we sleep. I don't know if you knew this or not. But when we're sleeping, our body is still aware of the noises around us and it's raising our blood pressures and heart rates even when we're sleeping, which can lead to cardiovascular problems. Studies have shown that children who are in schools that are closer to airports and railroad tracks, um, it actually directly affects their ability to learn. And in 98, a study found that children and teachers in New York City that were right next to the um, train, uh, train railroad tracks that... Um, that because of that, it actually cost them 11% of teaching time in the school. And it actually affected their development. They weren't developing as um, much as the other schools in the area. And so when they actually took measures to prevent them from the hearing um, problems, they actually found that their development increased and actually surpassed other schools in the area. Um, even in places like healing places, like hospitals, a place where I work at, there's a dramatic. There's been a dramatic increase in the amount of noise. In 1960, they found that the average hospital had a noise level of 57 decibels, and in 2010, they did another measurement and they found the average hospital had a noise level of 72 decibels. 
Noise levels have been doubling every 30 years since they began measuring them at the beginning of the 20th century. Um, welcome to church. Um, here we talk about the good news of the gospel. Um, but there were also studies done during the pandemic, and you might have come across this, like everyone was inside and no one was using cars. If you want to talk to about cars with me and my thoughts on cars, please talk to me after the sermon. I'm very passionate about it, and we can change the world. But um, apart from that, um, I don't know if you noticed, if you read reports about how when we um, were on lockdown and we went inside, the environment just flourished. And animals really loved us not being in their business. And um, the trees really liked us not destroying their land. And insects just really liked us being inside, apparently. Um, but also they found that uh, they did studies in Ireland and America. And the noise levels decreased as much as 50% across the countries. So I think we can summarize all of this by saying that noise pollution is a problem. And I'd argue that it's not just about the noise pollution in the world around us, but also personal things in our lives that are bringing noise into our minds, that are clogging our minds, like just the simple one, information. One journalist, David Schenk, labeled this problem as data smog. Um, uh, in a recent Facebook survey conducted by me at lunchtime yesterday, people responded to what the number one noise in their lives was, and these were some of the responses. Their phone, electronic devices, self-talk, politics, my heart, chronic physical pain, Wesley's whining, nursing school, to-do lists, anxiety, Wesley's whining, leaf blowers, attempting to feel like I've done enough to be worthy. And I put another one up, uh, another one that was by far the most one was kids, but I didn't want to put that up. Um, but it's true. Um, but people are either consciously or unconsciously realizing that noise is a major problem in our lives. Um, yoga and silent retreats are experiencing rapid growth. Airbnb's fastest growing type of location is one that is away from busy areas and where it's most isolated, quiet, and um, surrounded by nature. And I now ironically get mindfulness reminders through my Apple Watch. And also don't ask me about my feelings on corporations adopting mindfulness tactics in order to ignore unhealthy worlds they are creating. But we live in a world of noise that we were never created for. And so, what is the answer to this world that we now live in? Well, I want to propose to you today that it's something that's been with us for nearly 2,000 years, longer actually, um, but in terms of this scenario, and something that has been practiced by Christians for thousands of years, and it's something that has a track record of drawing people closer to the heart of God. And that something is contemplative prayer. In some circles, it's also known as centering prayer. Our sermon series is a foundation of prayer. And places like monasteries have literally built their foundations on contemplative prayer. It's literally what they've built on. So a good question to ask is, what is contemplative prayer? Prayer. Well, 
for me, I want to look back at the saints that have gone before us. So I have got a number of quotes that I want to read through. And I invite you right now to take a deep breath, slow your heart, and just read what these people that have been practicing this practice over thousands of years have come to realize what contemplative prayer is. So the first one is Thomas Merton, and he says, oh, no, Richard Foster, and he says, contemplative prayer immerses us into the silence of God. Contemplative prayer immerses us into the silence of God. Thomas Merton says that contemplative prayer is fundamentally simple. And he goes on to say that contemplative prayer is not so much a way to find God as a way of resting in him, whom we have found, who loves us, who is near to us, who comes to us to draw us to himself. Thomas himself actually goes on to say that all public forms of worship are useless without comprehending and embracing the silence that's found in contemplative prayer. He says, this response to prayer calls forth, that calls forth is not usually one of jubilation or audible witness. It is a wordless and total surrender of the heart of silence. For more on surrender, join us next week because Liz is gonna be preaching on surrender. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, she's probably hating me right now for calling her out. But <laughs> um, St. John of the Cross said, our greatest need is to be silent before this great God, for the only language he hears is the silent language of love. One of my favorite theologians, Teresa of Avila, she says, um, prayer is an act of love. Words are not needed. Ah. <laughs> mm. And lastly, my favorite quote, and this is um, from Catherine Doherty, and she says, true silence is the speech of lovers. True silence is a garden enclosed where alone the soul can meet its God. True silence is a key to the immense and flaming heart of God. It is the beginning of a divine courtship that will end only in the immense, creative, fruitful, loving silence of final union with the beloved. I'm just going to pause there and I actually just want to practice this for a second. So we're going to enter into just a brief moment of silence. I don't know about you, but it's like, it's really nice to just sit in silence and not have any expectations. Just letting go of the need to do anything, be anything, other than to just be. What's really great is that we actually find this idea of finding God in silence 
scattered throughout the scriptures. And that's where they actually, where we find its ultimate foundation. Psalm 37, seven, it says, be silent in the Lord's presence and wait patiently for him. In Mark, we see Jesus and it says that then Jesus got up early in the morning when it was still very dark, departed and went out to a deserted place and there he spent time in prayer. Psalm 62, one says, for God alone my soul awaits in silence. And Zephaniah, it says, stand in silence in the presence of the sovereign Lord. Silence is integral to the Christian life and our life of prayer. This is my working definition of it. Um, well, I'm just going to read it. Contemplative prayer is God's invitation to be with him in silence. That's it. Now, I th actually, when I've been reading and practicing, practicing contemplative prayer, I've found it really helpful to break it down into the main elements of what it is. And I think also, it's also helpful to recognize that as a charismatic and vineyard movement, to identify what our predominantly main source of prayer is and our main source of or uh, main practice of prayer is what I like to just say charismatic prayer and under that I think of like uh, healing, praying for healing and deliverance and um, for God to intervene in our lives, praying for our cities, praying for people and that's so important and that's great but I thought it might be helpful for us to look at the two differences between contemplative prayer and charismatic prayer. So we get a good idea of what we're into, entering into with each one. So I created this slide, and we've got contemplative on one side and charismatic on the other. And when we look at contemplative prayer, it's mainly about silence. It's mainly about being with God. It's mainly about being in a posture of receiving God's love. And it's mostly about a personal journey that we're on with God. And then when we look at our charismatic side of prayer, we're looking at it in a way of responding to God. And so if you've been trained to pray for healing or deliverance, the number one thing is to sit and wait to hear from God. And then not only that, but then to act in obedience to what God is saying. And so when we're thinking about it, we're responding to God. And then we're actually acting with God in, in that prayer life. Um, and because we're acting with God, it's mostly missional in basis. And the way I think of that is that it's actually not about us. It's about the person we're praying for. And so we're transitioning from it's just my journey to, with God to our journey or your journey with God. How can I partner with God to help this person in front of me? And then it's mostly relational in nature. We're building relationships through our charismatic prayer life. We're not just going, okay, good luck. We're actually going on a journey with that person. And so I don't know if that's helpful or not. And, I'll, and if you noticed, I, I did separate them. But there's, I want to invite you also to think about the things that actually join them together too. And um, 
we'll see later on, but I think the thing that actually the biggest foundation that joins these two together is love. In the contemplative side, we're being awakened and aware of God's love for us. And in the charismatic side, we're being awakened to how we love others. Um, so in order, the way I think about this is that in order to be effective in our charismatic prayer life, we must be rooted in our contemplative prayer life. We can't focus on one only. We need both of these worlds in our life that we're continually practicing. When we only per, uh, focus on contemplative prayer, we can err too much on the individual side of the Christian walk. And when we only focus on the charismatic side, we can get lost, we can get burnt out, and we forget how to receive God's love in our life. And so in the, in the vineyard, we're constantly talking about both ends, right? We'll ha you'll hardly ever hear someone say, this is it. We're always straddling the both and side of life. We both need contemplative prayer and charismatic prayer in our life. And I think when we think about contemplative prayer and what we're doing um, you know, it's not so much about withdrawing from the world so that we can escape. When the Benedict uh, monasteries started, it was actually never a way to remove themselves from the world, but actually how to better love the world through their contemplative rules and prayer life. And so it's not so much about withdrawing from the world so that we can escape it, but it's withdrawing from the world so that we can be better connected with it. When we look at the origins, we see that contemplative prayer is actually birthed when Christians were being oppressed. And so for them, contemplative prayer was not just some ethereal thing that was far off. Contemplative prayer was a way of dealing with everyday life. It was actually a way of being connected to everyday life that they were experiencing. It was a way of walking with God in union with him. And so when we think about it, we can go, our contemplative prayer life is connected to doing the dishes at night when we get home from work. It's connected to driving the kids to school when they're screaming. And we can handle the noise, and we can handle the noise of the radio or the music or anything like that, because in our lives we've received the peace of silence with God. Contemplative prayer connects us to every part of our life and roots our life in the reality of the kingdom of God. So the question is, how do we go about doing this? How do we go about um, doing contemplative prayer? You know, when, uh, like I said, when we look at the charismatic side of prayer, there's literally something called the five-step prayer model that we, that we teach a lot of the time and we train people to do that. But how do we begin to do that with contemplative prayer? And firstly, I just want to preface this by saying, I don't think this is about mastering a technique. It's not about coming up with a to-do list and saying, I've checked it all off, that's it, that's done. But that being said, I do think there's some practical things that we can look at when we're doing contemplative prayer. And the first one is finding a space that's quiet and finding a space and time that's easy for you, that's quiet and not complicated. 
Don't feel like you have to make it this hour-long thing and go, I have to make an hour, otherwise not. Make it easy for you. Don't make it hard. It's not like this thing that it's going to be a guilt-shame thing that if you don't do it, God's going to be angry with you or anything like that. Contemplative prayer is primarily an invitation from God, not a demand, an invitation. It's a way of us connecting with him. So don't complicate it. If, especially, and I just want to say this, especially if you struggle with silence. Sometimes I know I can, I, get, I feel guilty when I approach certain practices that just don't fit well with me. Don't feel like this is something that's going to ruin your relationship with God. This is an invitation to be with God. So my second thing I would um, recommend is to breathe and relax Notice your body. Our bodies are important. Notice where it's tense in your body and allow to feel relaxed and let go of that tension and practice on breathing. And um, as we do that, we let go of stuff that we're worried about, that we're feeling about, and we're allowing ourselves to feel relaxed before the Lord. And as we do that, we become aware of what's happening in our hearts and God's presence that's already with us. Like um, I think Thomas Merton said, it's not about finding, it's not about going somewhere, it's about finding the fact that God is with us already. Um, and then if you want, if, if you're someone that likes meditating on scripture, do that. Um, if you're, if you're in a place where you're feeling unrelaxed and you have been reading scripture and you've got a scripture that speaks a lot to you, I recommend just meditating on that, bringing it to your mind. One of my favorite ones to do this when I'm practicing this is to just um, repeat in my mind, be still and know that I am God. That's a great verse for this. And lastly, end in silence and a posture of openness. This is not about us having the last word in this prayer. It's about God allowing to have the last word. And so when we're leaving the space, we're leaving it with the um, attitude of being open to the day that's before us, knowing that we have been centered and grounded in the silence with God. And something that's, I also want to recognize that with this process is that a lot of emotions come up. Um, I practiced this this morning and I thought maybe this might be helpful. Um, when I practiced it this morning, I immediately started noting I had a really high stress level. I was really worried and I was anxious about preaching this morning. I was doing communion and the sermon and I was like, oh, this is going to be terrible. Um, and that's literally, most of the time, that's how I know that I recognize these emotions and there's this such this I, uh, this morning I had such an uncomfortable feeling and I think that's good <laughs> I think it's good to be able to recognize those and that's part of the process but because it's part of that process I also want to recognize that if you are here and you are someone that suffers from a lot of trauma um, sometimes being alone by ourselves is actually um, a, a big trigger 
if we're experiencing trauma. And actually being alone in a quiet space can actually feel unsafe. And so I just want to recognize that. And if that is you, and this is a process that is just too traumatic to go through, that's okay. Please don't force it. Like, do not force yourself to go into a place that you're just not ready to do. Um, when speaking about monks whose lives revolve around contemplative prayer, Thomas Merton said this, he says, the way of monastic prayer is a way of following Christ, of sharing in his passion and resurrection. And for that very reason, the dimensions of prayer and solitude are those of man's ordinary anguish, his self and hers. This was written a few decades ago. But his self-searching, his moments of nausea at his own vanity, facility, and capacity for betrayal. The way of prayer brings us face to face with the sham and indignity of the false self. Ah. <laughs> um, the way of prayer brings us, um, so the monk faces the worst, but discovers the hope in the best. The darkness comes light from death to life. And so I want to recognize that that's the journey we're going on when we're, when we're entering into contemplative prayer. It's not going to be roses and butterflies all the time. Sometimes it may be, and that's great. But it's not always going to be like that. And so it's good to just recognize that it's part of the journey that we live. Like I was saying in... in with communion of living in the now and the not tension. We're living in this way where we're on a journey and we're not going to arrive this side of the kingdom. Our final arrival is when God renews all things and there is no more suffering. And unfortunately, that's not on our time as much as we want it to be. <laughs> but through this journey that we undertake, where we face up to our own humanity, we discover that when we realize our human nature, we discover the beauty and love and grace and mercy of the mysterious and loving God. It's here that we find out our true authenticity that's located in Jesus. And it's here that we find God's true love in the silence. I'm going to end on this last quote and then we're going to do one more practice um, but Catherine Doherty says this and it's this is what the hope is this is what we hope is going to come from our contemplative prayer life the silence then will break forth in in a charity that overflows in the service of the neighbor without counting the cost it'll witness to Christ anywhere always availability will become delightsome and easy. For in each person, the soul will see the face of her love. Hospitality will be deep and real. For a silent heart is a loving heart. And a loving heart is a hospice to the world. And so when we think about all the amazing things that we are doing right now, with the Afghan refugees or the Hudson Bay kids or in our local neighborhoods with our neighbors in our workplaces, in our everyday lives. This is the goal of contemplative prayer, that we may face these things not as a task, but as an invitation to receive the joy and delight of the Lord as we serve others.